This is Bruce Sheffer of TriTac Games, reminding everybody who's a Fringeworthy player who has ever thought about playing Fringeworthy that we are going to be having a great presence at Gen Con this year. So please, if you're planning on going to Gen Con in August, then make sure that you sign up for our games, which are going to be opening on May the 20th. So please download the full event schedule and look for Savage Worlds and TriTac Games Fringeworthy, Bureau 13, all those names, and get in our names. We hope to see you on Savage Saturday nights or any other time. Please stop by our booth that's going to be in the main hall for TriTech Games and meet the legendary Richard Taholka himself. Event information can be found by typing in Gen Con Indie 2012 in your internet browser and going in and registering to be a player there and you'll be able to download the schedule. See you there, and keep exploring. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. This is Amber. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast of chumming up with some really big, beefy guys and having them tell you where to go. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> that, now that is an introduction. <laughs> Wait a minute. So, Amber... Do you, do you count as one of those beefy guys? I don't think so. Actually, I was referring to what we're talking about this week, which is the Golden Horde. In Fringeworthy, there are a number of alternate worlds. Of course, it's all alternate worlds. What am I saying? But in the Fringe Path layout, each node has a prime that is a primary location for a culture. Now, this particular one is not on a prime. This is on an alternate but it's interesting in that this is a world in which the Khan, the, the great Genghis Khan, his culture, his society didn't die off. It, or perhaps we're just looking at an alternate version at that time, because it's a couple hundred years after the original Khan, but it is now holding sway over all of Europe and Asia. And so iDead explorers from Fringeworthy have gone there and according to lore, really screwed up. Just came out, got found out, got grabbed and thrown before the con. And who said, gee, you know, why shouldn't I just kill you? Because you're obviously spies and who knows what. And which they said, no, no, we're from the Fringe Pass. It's right over there. And they basically spilled the whole beans on the whole thing. At which point the con said, they were able to convince him, obviously, by, by one of them going through. And he said, hmm. Seems to me like there's some opportunities for trade here, which they were fully uh, suggesting that maybe IDET and the Khan could get together and create a vast trading empire, not only on his own world, but across the universes. Mostly because they're trying to save their skin, right, John? Oh, yeah. I, I can imagine that they uh, 
also it was more along the line of one of you gets to go through because the rest of you are going to be uh, my guests while we watch this happen. Oh, yeah. No, only one, I'm sure, was allowed to go through. The story itself is pretty sketchy in all the rule books. So uh, I have a feeling that when he went through, he didn't come back. He beat feeded back to Ided and, and uh, Hatsumi base and told them that, oh, my goodness, all the guys are slain or have been captured and very high-pitched voice probably the whole way. And they say, and you left them there? Well, what was I going to do? They were big guys and they're big and beefy and got big swords and, and, and mean talking, really mean talking. And you did bring back the crystal. Well, oops. Oops. <laughs> uh, yeah. So. Hey, I think I forgot to turn my stove on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I got to go back and feed the cat. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so the Khan and his golden horde mm-hmm. is now part of the alien core for Fringeworthy. And it's quite possible to have one of the members of the golden horde in your party. And we wanted to talk about what's it like, what's this character like, what would the dynamics be between them by doing what we have before with the other members of the Alien Corps, by looking at the culture and the physiology and, and such. Now, that's pretty easy to do because they are alternate Earths, humans. So we could pretty much assume that all the physiology is the same, at least in you know, the vast majority of cases. There may be some different genetics involved, but they look human. They probably interbreed with us as far as we can tell. So therefore, they're human. So we don't have to worry too much about the, the whole lot of questions we did about their physiology and their reproductive cycles and everything else. But we're mostly going to be talking about their culture and the way that they work dynamically with a team. So Blix... When you look at this guy in this picture here for the Golden Horde, and you think about what a member of the Golden Horde would be like, is there any popular characters that everybody in our audience might recognize and think would be the first thing you'd go to as far as what this guy would be like? Are you talking about in history or like as an actor or? Well, I'm just saying is that, you know, when you read this description, to me, it sounds very reminiscent of something. Like a Klingon? Exactly. Thank you, Blix. Yeah, these guys, I mean, the way they're cast in this description, you'd swear that these were Klingons. That whole grunting, either tactern or wildly expressive behavior and the sense of honor that they have. But like all of our other ones that we've done, I think that's looking at it too shallowly. I think there's a lot more to them than we're looking at when we just say, oh, yeah, he's a Klingon. I'll just play him as a Klingon. Any more than looking at the original Klingons to say, okay, well, the Klingons in next gen and the later ones are all going to be exactly the same. Do you guys know how the Klingon character or look came about in Star Trek? The original Klingons were done, you know, without the fancy forehead makeup, were done to look like Mongolians. William Campbell was the original Klingon. I think he was Koloss. He came onto the set. And you know, he'd already known that he was going to play a Klingon and it was an alien race. And he, and he comes on and he gets a script and he sees his dialogue and he says, okay, a Klingon, what's a Klingon look like? He asked around, he said, oh, go over to, to the makeup. They'll, they'll get you all taken care of. So he goes, takes a script and he's reading it and he goes over and he sits down in the chair in the makeup thing. And the guy who's the head of makeup comes over and he sits down and he looks at him and he says, so what's a Klingon look like? 
Oh. <laughs> and he says, you don't know? And he says, no, I give me no direction whatsoever. And he says, okay, so I'll tell you what, give me big bushy eyebrows and a Fu Manchu mustache. Right. And he cr- literally, on the spot, created the look of the Klingons. The olive skin complexion. Right, right. They have the big forehead ridges and stuff. No, that came, that came much later. That didn't happen until they did the movies. Right. And, and the Klingons don't talk about that. Right. Well, they explained it in Enterprise. Yes, they did. Okay. The whole look of the Klingons, but not necessarily the way they acted. That was scripted. Okay, but the look of the Klingons themselves, William Campbell looked at this character that was written for him, and he thought to himself, you know, what group can I think of would be like this? A kind of a noble, uh, yet, you know, a barbarian. And, of course, he immediately said, Mongols, of course, an empire, and, and always pushing the borders, never being satisfied with the status quo. Yeah, that sounds like the Klingons to me, and so that's why he came up with the idea. All right, so we have this group, the Golden Horde, and they're not the con of our world. Blix, maybe you can tell how they're different? I read this, this excellent book called Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World, and it goes into severe depth into the, the whole Mongol Empire, how it was formed, how it came to be, and it literally starts with who we know as Genghis Khan as a child. Actually, his real name was Timujin. The whole Mongol horde thing starts with him. Prior to his rise to power, the Mongols were nothing but tribes fighting amongst one each other. One tribe would steal from another tribe. There was no kind of empire. There was really nothing going on. And then when Genghis comes along, it's a long story, but he winds up uniting the tribes and then starts his tirade across Asia and then eventually into Europe. Now, What's interesting is most people see the the Mongols as this primitive group of, you know, crazy warriors who are just marauders and, and basically fancified, you know, horse-bound pirates. And yeah. nothing could be further from the truth. Under Genghis's rule, they are nothing like that. They're actually very plotting, very intelligent, very educated people. They actually bring about many changes uh, – in the way that warfare is done, in the way that conquering is done. They actually uh, surpass the Romans in a lot of ways in their tactics and their ability to control large regions with very little supervision. However, (laughs) to do this, they employ very um, severe consequences to going against the Khan. Brutal. Brutal. I mean, absolutely brutal. So basically, just in a nutshell, real quick, uh, one of the things that they will do is is they will take over an area and then they will let the people rule their own area. They, they let them have their own religion. They let them have you know their own rule of government. But basically when the Khan asks for something from them, they must give it to them without hesitation. And if they don't, the uh, the Mongols actually ride in and they, they literally burn the town to the ground and kill everybody, women, men, children, animals, everything. And the reason why they do this so that they don't have to do it again. The point is, is that if you resist the Khan, he will destroy you down to the man. But if you get along with him, he'll leave you alone. You just give him what he wants, which usually isn't too much. It's usually like soldiers and tribute. And then you get to live a life where you're protected. Because if anybody else attacks you, the Mongols will fight like hell to, de- to defend you because you're part of their territory. So 
if you're on his bad side, you meet the brutality like you've never seen before. But if you're on his good side, no one will mess with you because then they will meet the brutality like they've never seen before. And he's actually able to control regions through fear. But that doesn't mean he's brutal and it doesn't mean he's a horrible you know, barbarian. And that, that's where this, a lot of this comes from. Right. He's not capricious in any way. He doesn't want to have to do that. He would rather, he would much rather you just pay your tribute so he can leave you alone. But at the same time, he knew that to keep control, that's what he had to do. And that's why they always get branded as being barbaric, but they weren't. It was very plotting. It was a very smart plan. One of his techniques was he had a large book of rules. It's called the Yasa. Everybody was expected to obey them completely. He published them. He sent them around. Everybody had to follow them. Unfortunately, none of them, this codex survives to this day. There are a few that have been attributed to him through history. I have a, like a list of 21. For example, it's leaders of a religion, preachers, monks, persons who are dedicated to religious practice, priors of mosques, physicians, and those who bathe the bodies of the dead are freed from public charges. That They were not taxed. You could not tax somebody like that. However, it's forbidden under penalty of death. It's forbidden to ever make peace with a monarch a prince or a people who have not submitted. So he's saying, this is how you have to conduct yourself with outsiders. As long as you do it, you're fine. But if you ever breach it in any way, bam, the death sentence comes right on down. There were very few non-death sentences if you violated the Khan's law. But you got to remember, Bruce, in this day and age, that was necessary because they didn't have the communication ability that we have today. They didn't have... Uh, the ability to document things and stuff. Basically what it was, was like, this is my law and it's, it, you know, it's my way or the highway, which had to be done during those times. You know, it's, it's, it's a completely different time. It's not like you can go and investigate and search through their records and all. That kind of stuff didn't exist. It was, you do what I say or I will trounce you. But you do that enough times and people just do what you say. I'm not actually criticizing it in a negative way. I mean, this is it's, this is going on at the same time where you have in Europe the divine right of kings where they can do anything that they darn well please because God has placed them over the people and there are no laws to protect anybody. The Khan, he followed his own laws. Yes. He wrote the laws down. He said, this is the way that we're going to conduct our empire and everybody has to follow them. And everybody did. Mm-hmm. As draconian as some of the punishments were for violating it, it, at least everybody knew where they stood. Yeah, you didn't get repeat offenders either. <laughs> but you didn't also have people suddenly saying, you know, last week I said that was okay. This week I'm going to kill you for it. Right. And not only that, he gave you a lot of freedoms that these other people wouldn't. The Europeans would not give you. He did not impose religion on you. He gave his people a ton of freedom because he knew how important religious beliefs were. And he wanted you to pray to whatever gods it was that made you happy. As long as it did not interfere with any of his rules, he was fine with it. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, he commonly would ask for advice from someone from China. He'd ask for, you know, someone from India, Christians, whatever the religions that were there in his court. He would say, well, what do you think about this? And was perfectly willing to listen to their answers. Of course, he made the final decision. He was totally against the idea of there being some kind of state religion. In a lot of ways, you got to think that he was brilliant, you know. And and this continued on. It continued down the line. I mean, he, he was sort of the one that started it all, but... 
his descendants continued this tradition for at least two generations that I know of. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the Golden Horde, we have to assume that they continued to do it. It's what made them so successful. Oh, yeah. I mean, according to the write-up, they've crushed Europe in the Muslim kingdoms under the, you know, to the point where they can't mount a, a decent re- defense against them. Time for tribute. This isn't a monoculture on his world, but it is a mono-government. I mean, he has a world government. By the rules of, of Fringeworthy, he has established one of the conditions for joining the Commonwealth, which is a world government. Well, at least in the old world. He was able to do that, but now, when it comes to this alternate, was it because of whatever the, the, the con of this world and his generations had done, or was it... Luck. Well, there's luck, and, and what the other, the other governments or groups or religions didn't do. Like, perhaps, let, let's just say, because it doesn't say Christian or Muslim, right? It just says the rest of the world. It does say Muslim. Oh, does it? Okay. All right, so it says Muslim. It says Europe and the Muslim world. So we should assume that Europe means Christian. But let's say they didn't do something right. Let's say something crazy was going on over there. It never says why he was able to take it over. Here's a good reason why it might be. It is believed that Genghis Khan, the, the Mongols' invasion, they brought the Black Plague with them unintentionally. They didn't do it on purpose, but it was because of their conquering and stuff that they brought. You know, they that because they, there's belief that the Black Plague started in Mongolia. It came from the the, the steppe region, and there's some evidence for this. Perhaps. The Black Plague was more devastating than it was in our world. And maybe that's the alternate change. So their forces were weaker, so he was able to take them over more readily. I mean, it, it could be for any reason. I'm just throwing that out there, that, that it doesn't just have to be that he was so good or, or that the, the Mongols on this world were so good. Maybe the enemy was decimated previously, sort of the same way that the Native Americans were decimated by smallpox. Right. It's also possible that... On that particular world, the recovery from the fall of Rome, the collapse of the Roman Empire, took longer. And so they really were uh, hardly more than you know guys running around with studded leather when the Khan came rolling over. They didn't have any real armor. They didn't have any real cavalry. That made a huge difference in the Turkish area. When we talked about this during our adventuring in ancient Europe. Yep. That was a lot of things that made the difference as far as how far the Khan could have stretched. If Charlemagne hadn't chosen Christianity as the state religion, which unified a lot of the area, it might have made a big difference as to people working together against the Horde. The Horde was very, very united. Yes. They came over as a wave and if you weren't ready to stand against them, you didn't stand against them. Well, the thing is with the Mongols is that the one thing that they had they were incredible cavalrymen. Their horsemanship was peerless. These guys were doing acrobatics and riding and shooting bows. And I mean, they're like wrapped around the side of the horse and doing flips and everything. They were, besides their tactics, they just were incredible combatants. Hey, let's talk about their tactics for just a second since we're on this. They they would do stuff that nobody else would do. I mean, they were they were unbelievable tacticians. They would ride at, at the enemy, and they would get just out of bow shot range, and then they would turn and run as if they had seen 
you know, the, their forces that were against them, and they were always outnumbered. So it was, it was a very realistic strategy. They would turn and run, and then the enemy would pursue. And these cats would literally turn around in their saddles and mow these guys down with arrows as they closed in on them. Um, that is just crazy. But not only that, they, they would go beyond that. These, these guys would do anything to win. They would literally dam a river and change its course and flood a city to destroy it, to take it over. So if they were going to invade a city, and cities were usually located either on a shore or on a riverbank, right? They would they would change the course of the river to flood the city and wipe out their army, and then they would attack. These guys, they were unbelievable tacticians, and, and they didn't care what they had to do to win. They would do anything to win and because they were always fighting against four and five and ten to one odds and they would still win because they would do stuff that that the the christians and the muslims would never think to do but they didn't win in our world however they did consolidate their region fairly well the mongolian empire really only lasted till like about 1290 1300 fell apart from pretty much the same reason most of them fall apart kids right it was a cult of personality that too Genghis, you know, he ruled the roost. They, everyone was afraid of him. Everyone trusted him. Everyone would will, was willing to die for him. Once it, you know, he split up his empire amongst his like three grandchildren, it didn't have the, the power behind it then. You know, they weren't as highly respected as he was. Secession was the problem, yeah. It wasn't clear enough how secession was done. That's the one thing he didn't think ahead on. And when he died, he had, yeah, he had several sons. And then the empire, of course, there were power struggles. And it's like, you know, if you, if you have like a powerful mob family and, you know, the Don passes away and then, you know, you got a power struggle. Of course, the whole now is fragmented and now it's nowhere near as strong as it was before. Much more successful in the, on their world is that Genghis lived until he's like in his 70s or his 80s. He died when he was 65. If he had lasted another 10, 20 years, oh, yeah. he would have re- started to realize, you know, the kids are fighting amongst each other. You know, I'm going to skip a generation and go to their kids. I think he was getting ready to move into Europe and do some real damage in Europe. And he, was he caught an arrow? Or he was poisoned? No. What? Took an arrow to the knee? What? No, no. <laughs> no, he wasn't poisoned. I was going to conquer Europe until I took an arrow to the knee. Yeah. <laughs> Something happened to him and he died untimely. I can't remember what it was exactly. In the near future, mankind will discover something that will change him forever. An ancient portal system to millions of worlds. Built by a civilization of advanced alien beings, now lost to the ravages of interdimensional war. He will venture forth into the fringes of space and time to find alternate Earths and alien worlds where he will find the wondrous bounty of knowledge as to who he was and what he might become. He will also find danger at every turn as he encounters hostile societies, alien beings, and the insidious Meller. Fringeworthy, the tabletop game of interdimensional adventure is now available for a D20 system and coming soon to Savage Worlds. Action and adventure await you as you explore through the interdimensional fringes of space to an infinite number of new worlds. Your characters will face danger and excitement around every corner. Sail with Blackbeard on the Seven Seas. Journey to a steampunk Victorian age. 
Fight the Soviets in an 80s America that lost the Cold War. Travel to an alternate future and witness a supernova from the bridge of a starship, and then battle it out with blasters and plasma swords. Use any D20 setting you already own, or invent your own. Check out the French Woody Podcast at tritaxsystems.podbean.com to find out more. Whether you've never heard of Fringeworthy or have been playing it for the past 25 years, the Fringeworthy Podcast will entertain and inform you of all the cool stuff you can do with the most all-encompassing setting ever written. Every week, we'll take you on a tour of the fringes of space and give you tips on how to game in this fantastic multiverse. We discuss adventure ideas for the game masters and how to keep your team of characters alive for the players. Go to tritaxsystems.podbean.com and take a listen. You can also find us on iTunes under keyword Fringeworthy. A million million worlds await you. Music by Erminster, available on iTunes. I have a question. Sure, go ahead, Amor. What you got, Pam? My question is uh, in regards to their honor. I know how for samurai, and I realize these are not samurai, but... Mm -hmm. As an example, if samurai feel that their honor has been compromised, they try to make amends with an honorable suicide. How do these people interpret honor and the maintaining of honor? If battle is their life and, and the, the combat is what they do to live, it and, and they just being so complete to strategists and tacticians to go to such extents for the sake of victory... If they lose, how does that impact their sense of honor, and what do they do to fix that? Well, I'll tell you, because um, that's one of the things they addressed in the, in the book that I read. When it comes to honor with, with Mongols, honor is about winning. It has nothing to do with traditional concepts of honor. In other words, cheating is okay as long as you win. The ends justify Dis- the means. Right, absolutely. It's only dishonorable to lose, so they could do Anything. It doesn't matter what it takes. They would do anything to win. Except disobey their superiors. Exactly, exactly. And, and even then, I bet they could make a case. As long as they won. No, the, the Khan's number one uh, attribute he looked for in everybody around him was loyalty. I guess against the Khan. You're right, you're right, you're right. But against, like, say you were against a, you went against a superior officer and your decision won the battle – well, I don't know. That, that's a good question, Bruce. That's why he had the Yasa. You could be totally right about that. Other than that, yeah, they would do anything to win. Like they stabbing a guy in the back to win a fight, poisoning somebody, that was honorable. Throwing plague into a village was honorable. It, it was all about winning. And basically what it boiled down to was they didn't have to deal with dishonor too much because uh, they generally, if they lost, they died. So so dealing with dishonor was generally not something that they had to deal with too often. As according to what we have here under the Golden Horde, the honor was the Khan's honor. So it was either that which was laid down by the, the Khan in the Yasa, or it was something that glorified the Khan. As long as it glorified the Khan or followed the rules, it was okay. Yeah. You know, now, there were a lot of things that they weren't allowed to do because the Khan didn't like it. A lot of the rules that came out, he put in the Yasa, came out of his own life. So, for example, his wife was abducted by another tribe. Mm-hmm. So one of the very first rules he put down was you do not abduct women from other tribes. Mm-hmm. The keeping of slavery. Children of slaves are free. Yes. There's no hereditary slavery because he saw that and he thought that was wrong. Wait a minute, Bruce. He what? He he had been in slavery. Exactly. 
He was captured and enslaved at one point. He managed to escape, mm -hmm. and he freed himself. But the fact was is that he put down very strong strictures on these things because he had experienced them himself. So that's why most of these had to do with the con's honor. Says whatever you did, you know, you could pretty much get away with almost anything as long as it wasn't specifically spoken against in the yasa, as long as it gave honor to the con, and by the same token, your own superiors. So uh, why don't we go ahead and, and look over this thing here like we have in our previous podcast and just kind of check out what's here and see what we can get out of this. Yeah. This is a, a alternate con culture here. Yeah. See where they may differ from, you know, and we're relying on you, Peter, as our expert. <laughs> okay. One thing I would say, based, based on the year, they would have uh, some black powder weapons. Now we're talking handguns. Chinese-style handguns. That's a tech level. That's not an actual year in their calendar. Chinese had handguns in, in the 1300s. I'm agreeing with you. It, it okay. said 1420. It's just their tech level compared to Earth Prime. So it would be still late PL2, early PL3 by D20 standards. They had horses, and they would have had some early gunpowder. And, of course, the Chinese invented gunpowder. What? Would they have had cannons? Yes. Uh, they would not be bell cannons. They would have the weld the rods together and then band them up really tight and then pray it doesn't burst when you fire the thing. Would it fire like shrapnel? Would it? Yes, yeah, sure. Bursting shells? Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. They had that in rockets. Yeah, but rockets is not the same thing as firing it out of a cannon, John. That's true, but some of the rockets were fairly explosive and designed for anti-personnel. They were anti-personnel rockets. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. So we are to assume that IDET is not allowing them or is not giving them actual modern firearms to take back to their land. They probably are, at least initially. It'll probably be AK-47s. And, let's face it, <laughs> they're sending out their own people, separate from IDET, to search the French Pass. So, while their year equivalent is 1420, which, means, which probably means that to manufacture their own weaponry and technology, that's the level they're probably at, because that's what they understand. But... They're going to have other weapons, too. Like, for example, the Khan and his guard are probably going to have fully modern weapons. So if you go into his encampment, yeah, you know, outside of his encampment, you might see, like, the older weaponry. But inside of his encampment, his guys have got the real deal. Oh, no, yeah. yeah they're going to get the best, of the best of the pick right oh, off yeah. the bat. Now, on top of that, I'm going to say that depending on where you are in your campaign, this is this is early campaign. Because the Khan is not stupid. He's a very, very bright fellow. He's bringing technology back. He's not just bringing back weapons. He's bringing back how to make those weapons. So he's probably got his guys figuring out how the machinery works, how it's done. Yeah, but it's still going to probably take him 100 years before he can really start manufacturing the way that yeah. – would be done in modern terms. Yeah, you got to remember there. There's a reason why they have the tech levels in in D20 Modern and Future. If they're between tech levels two and three, you know they're at two and three is cutting edge. Right. You give them a PL5 firearm, they still have to go through 
the necessary technology leaps in order to be able to make that PL5 firearm. Right, which right. means they got to go through three, then four, then get to five, and well, let's see, fringeworthy okay. technically would be early PL six. Right, I'm going to say by late campaign he has soldiers completely equipped because he's probably got a team of Mongols who have made contact with a world that's willing to trade his gold for real weapons. If I was Idet, I would give them very modern weapons for the very reason that Trav just said. He can't reproduce them. He has to get them from a high-tech source. AK-47s are high-tech. They're not as good as we were given the uh, Idet, but the, you know they're still good enough. The AK-47 is the most popular automatic <laughs> rifle on the planet because of its proliferation throughout the, so the former Soviet-held countries, including communist China. I believe Communist China even has their own version of the AK-47 that they reverse-engineered. It's called the SK. It's a very popular, hardy... You drop it in a puddle, you run a bore brush through it, and you're ready to go. Yeah, M16, you sneeze on it, and I hear that there's problems. But, yeah, they're going to give the Golden Horde AK-47s because they figure Russia's got a surplus of them, and Barodin will just... Amber, in case you don't know, uh, General Barodin, he's like one of the military heads in Hatsumi Base. He is the military head of Hatsumi Base. Yeah, he probably <laughs> just signed the check and said, here, we've got all these extras. Pardon me, comrade, but the name is Borodin, not Borodin. Borodin. They're bringing the Golden Horde in as an observed world, as observed diplomats, as, uh, you know, they tr they have to treat them like they treat everybody else. Yep. So they're not going to discriminate against them if they want to buy weapons they'll let them buy weapons you know they're in charge of that world there's no reason why you know that they wouldn't give them to them even Genghis was a giving person you know he was again we talked about him being draconian but at the same time you know he observed order if order was kept he didn't care he let people live their lives the way they wanted to he was actually a very generous person there's no reason why we wouldn't assume that the Golden Horde wasn't the same way. The Golden Horde isn't a caring, you know, loving people. They're people just like us, so there's no reason why we would assume that they would be, you know, horrible in any way. You know, they just have a different type of government. Well, they, they have a different mindset because of that government, too. Yeah. Now, I understand, though, there are uh, nations in the UN who would absolutely want to stop any weapon shipments like Iran. In the Muslim countries, uh, he's actually considered the great Satan of the ancient world, and they would consider any current versions of him, no, we oppose this. You don't give him weapons. You know, so you have this political issue happening in the UN as well because of remembered atrocities that happened, you know, hundreds of years ago. Earth Prime is not the only world out there. Idet is not the only place the Golden Horde would put their people. Once they discovered the French Path was out there, and that there were people that could travel it, they're going to have their own teams going out doing things, and they're not going to tell IDET anything about it. Oh, no, it was a partnership. United did not take over the Golden Horde. It says here in the second paragraph, a partnership, which means, yeah, we act together, but you guys are your own self-sufficient agency like Teus is. Right, they're doing their own thing, so you know he's sending people out and they're gathering their own supplies from their own worlds. And if they go to some world that's willing to sell them guns for gold, they're on it. I'm sure they wouldn't have any trouble getting them from Teus. the Victorians. Okay, well let's see here. Uh, I have the portals page because the home world 
Chung Kuo is negative one comma three. Negative one zero prime is Erd. <laughs> Erd prime, yeah, the stocky Erd. German. Well, they're they're with I dead also, so it's like I don't know. They'd be like, uh, let's see, what other worlds are there? First off, the Mongols fit perfectly within the Erd uh, mindset. They're all manly men. Right. They probably fit better than Idet does because Idet is a bunch of pansies compared to these two groups. They might, you know, if you want to run your cam- campaign properly, you might even say that the Erd and the Victorians and, and the Golden Horde actually all get along better than Idet does because we're this new pinko. Touchy feely. Kumbaya. Touchy feely, u- utopian kumbaya. You might even find that those guys all get along better because they see life in that, that different mindset than we do. They see the French Paz as an imperial opportunity. Correct. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, we see it as more as a commercial capitalist. I also can see that the earners would consider using the uh, Golden Horde as a puppet in their aspirations as well. They, they're on their alternate. Obviously, they're there to be used. And you know what? If you want to do this in your later campaigns, this would be kind of an interesting twist to do, something we've never talked about here, but something I'm thinking of at the moment. That could be your late campaign conflict. You know, this new um, unity begins with these old school thinking groups as opposed to our, our new schools. Like, you know, they would get together and say, you know, you people just don't understand us. You know, United is like, no, wait, wait, we can all get along. It's like, that's what we're talking about. We don't all get along. Especially if they figure out a way of producing a large number of Fringeworthy. Yes. Because get the Romans in on that, too? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Terra Nova? No, what's limiting, though, is keys. Because this is early campaign, we find them. There's probably going to be at most, what, two, three keys? You need keys to find more, other than marching them through the warp or the portal or whatever. You need keys to find more. Speaking of the warp or the port... It's a warp. It's a warp. In the Fringe book, in the uh, D20 book, it's a warp, which makes sense. Well, I'm looking now. That's uh, let me da, 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 survive the world, uh, save their own skin. It's in the back of the of the D20 book, and it's listed as a warp. Okay, yeah. on on the portal page. Okay, well, yeah. where would this warp be located? You would assume it's probably somewhere in their empire. It could be in. I would say somewhere close because they, they're taking rights to the con. Yeah, I agree. I think it's probably in his capital city. Yeah, or nearby. When the windup goes out, takes a look around, sees nothing, and comes back, they figure, oh, it's safe. And they walk right through or drive right through, one or the other. Right. It's near next to some mountain. That's where uh, Genghis grew up. And the mountain was like holy or something. And that's why when he died, they had to pull back to that mountain and it stopped their progress. And When we look at the racial traits, it kind of looks like they get screwed. Yeah. They get a, a plus one on con index, but intelligence is down two, wisdom is down two, charisma is down one, and strength is down one. So they're basically what? robust acrobatic riders, and everything else is not so good. Billy, deal with the aliens? Yeah, they're average. I think their strength is down one because of their size, but you know what? I disagree with that. Okay, because <laughs> you want to is if that's comparison to a modern human. And they are, it is comparison to a modern human. Okay, maybe they're smaller, but those dudes are tough. Okay. Oh, yeah, the con and dex, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, but still, no, 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 they're still strong. You know what, I would take a modern human against one of these guys, and I bet he would 
you know, I bet he'd be just as strong. Well, it's just a minus one. I mean, Peter, it, if you're talking about warriors, they're all going to have bonuses in that area anyways. All right, all right, all right. But why, why all the minuses? I mean, where do they get it back? I think it goes with the idea that these guys are being cast as primitives, as being, you know, not as cultured, completely different from how we're talking about the con. I think that this rendition is showing, is looking at them as being a bunch of nomadic, brutal, the Huns. The Romans viewed the Huns, we're kind of looking at the Golden Horde the same way, that they're just mm-hmm. a bunch of guys that are primitive, but they've got numbers and they've got ferocity. They're too stupid to, to quit, and their charisma is down because they're so ferocious. I just think that these choices were done because we're trying to make these guys fairly unattractive, which I think is interesting because you look at that and you're like, well, why would I want to play one? I think the Savage Worlds version is going to be a lot different. What do you think, John? These pluses and minuses are so low, uh, they don't translate. Basically, he's average. I mean, they're average in Savage Worlds. So there's no minuses, no bonuses. Uh, so you can make them as tough as you want. So in Savage Worlds, they're just basically a person yep. with the, the flavor that we've just added. So the, in Savage Worlds, these particular stats turn out to be a wash. Yes, that's correct. Not enough for a die level change, basically. I'm just saying is that I think that this, this particular golden horde that they have listed here, some of the things that we are giving to the con, these people don't have. They're not as cultured. They're not as sophisticated. They're also saying that most of the fringe-worthy that were being given to IDET to help them trade, mostly ignorant peasants and warriors. Mm-hmm. So it's like... These aren't the scholars. Right. You're going to be getting the washer women, the new adult that you know hasn't found, you know, okay, you're a warrior or this or that. The, the run guy, of the mill Mongolian, yeah. The guy who lost lost both legs when, when his horse fell on him. Those guys are not going to be fringe explorers under any circumstances. I mean, the con's honor is at stake here, okay? That's true, but then why is he saying ignorant peasants then? Well, because peasants were ignorant. They didn't know anything. They All they knew was their farms. They knew how to grow crops. How literate are these people? Are, are Can they read? Right, or are they are, is that only for a certain class to be able to read and write? I would say that they probably can't. I would say, yeah, with the scholars, I would say that literacy was a recessive part of their culture that only very learned people would be given that right to be able to be literate. I mean, most people didn't learn to read because they didn't see a purpose to it. To us, it seems easy to learn because we have a whole educational system designed to force people to read at a very young age. But for most of the world, they got along just fine not being able to read for millennia. Kings couldn't read. They didn't have a literate society. They didn't have a need for it. Bruce has mentioned they have this rule book, so I guess only the... uh the ones who needed to read could read the rule book then. You'd have the guy who's ahead and says, what does the Yasa say about this? And the scholar would flip it open and says, it says here this. You had to memorize them. I mean, they would tell you all the laws. They'd be reading them probably all the time to them, just like, you know, uh, a litany. And and then, you know, everybody was expected to learn them and then follow them. And if they failed to, they got killed. So everyone learned really well all these uh, the rules that were in the Yasa. Okay, now I remember we did this with the Demixi, I believe, and we did it with the Dezeal. Right. Uh, we can go down the personality and views and crank them out one by one. 
Actually, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of playing it as a character. Okay, so you have a character who is uh, one of the con. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, one of the Golden Horde, and you know this is how he's going to come across to you and the other players. Right. Okay. So we have personality and views. Eunice helps serve the Great Con. They see Eunice as their pawns. Mm-hmm. You're okay. helping us be a better empire you're the one giving us these things like modern weapons and what's this word technology yeah you're working for us to help us buddy yeah i did i did is their warrior force basically is their army to protect these people which means by the way they think that you as the other players as warriors yeah you're playing the golden hordesman your fellow people on i are the warriors for the Khan's new helpers. Mm -hmm. Family, important. Well, yeah, they'd have, you know, three, four generations all there in the same general area, you know, like great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, and kids all together working for a common goal, which is the survival of the family unit. So, yeah. And, And they're not that far away from how it was originally with the original Khan, where there wasn't any organization, where it was literally families, extended families, who were the ones in control. And, if, and when two families came together and wanted to make a treaty, they basically swapped kids and, ha- and got married. Yeah, they inter- intermarriages, yeah. So marriage and family was one of the ways of establishing treaties amongst people. And that was still carried on. The Khan himself, even though he really only considered his first wife to be his real wife, he still had many concubines and wives because of all the treaties he made with all these other groups when he was uniting them. Yeah, yeah, he did it all for the treaties. Aw, yeah. Anyways, uh, <laughs> work, always to live. Yes, you are working subsistence farming. You are doing, your work is to survive. You are making your own weapons. You are growing your own, or well, no, nomadic. You are gathering, because they were hunter-gatherers. Yeah, well, yeah, they were herdsmen, yeah. Yeah. So everything you did, all your work, that was just subsistence. That's all that was. And it says play never. Well, I disagree with that. I disagree with that totally. Yeah. Play is actually a fairly important thing to learn how to do things. I mean, it's maybe I would be embarrassed to play, you know, to become better warriors. Their games would be like, okay, track down that beast or hide and seek, essentially. Go and try where we try to find you, and if you if we can't find you by oh midday, you you know you win. If you don't, we're gonna beat the crap out of you. Well, yeah, <laughs> we might, you better learn to run fast too, or, or we'll kill you. Yeah, well that yeah well call out the weak. Yeah, sure. Well, I I, I don't know, Trav. Hold on, wait a minute. So uh, they had their own alcohol that was different than anyone else's. They had this thing called ch- hummus or kumis, depending on how it's pronounced. And it was basically fermented mare's milk. And then before they would serve it, they would mix it with mare's blood. Yum. Which sounds really disgusting. But but strong. Right. So, but they, they had a... I didn't think milk could ferment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they would ferment mare's milk. And, uh, shows and, what you know. <laughs> what they would do is they would literally keep it under their saddle, and that's how they got it warm and, and fermented it. 
I don't know the particulars of uh, beyond that. So they would drink and they would party. So they, they had a sense of play and enjoyment. I would see them wrestling a lot as, as you know, as, as games. I, I bet you they had something like Othello or Checkers or something like that that they played. Or, or a dice game, but they gambled quite a bit. This is what I see. They ride all day. They do their Mongol thing, you know, attack a city or whatever it is they do, or ride across the plains and, you know, hunt down a deer or whatever. And then the night falls, and they set up their camp, and they set up, you know, I can see them setting up like a big bonfire, 12 or 15 of these Mongol guys hanging out, and they're drinking and telling stories, and, you know, some of them are throwing dice and betting money. It's kind of a... Uh, a partying kind of society, but they actually took women with them as well. So they would, you know, they had a, a whole community that would travel with them. So I'm sure some of the guys, you know, they would bring their wives with them, or they would bring, you know, a, a troop of camp followers. I don't know. You know, I see these guys. They don't, I don't see them so different from everybody else. You know, a lot of times they're they're painted as being, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, stoic. This mob or whatever you know that they just crossed the land and destroyed everything i don't see them that way after reading about all the stuff that they did i see them as a very thinking people as is not so different from everybody else i'm sure they had games i'm sure they played i'm sure that they had you know all the things that 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 we have just maybe a little different in in some different ways okay yeah play it said never okay maybe not the way we say play yeah their version of playtime would be different than ours. Maybe it wasn't frivolous. Maybe their right. play was always purposeful. As you said, it's a, it's a contest. Yeah. Yeah, there's a difference between a game for the sake of having fun and a game for honing skills. Like, like if you want to go down as basic as you can, dodgeball? Dodgeball is you're honing your ability to dodge things. I, I mean, it, it's right there, right? Right. So if you might play chess because it's a form of learning strategy. And, yeah. if you, and if all you're doing, it, and if you play cards, you're learning, again, another strategy in how to read your opponents, yeah. uh, how to dominate each other in a game that's play. If they are really just sitting around doing nothing, maybe that's them resting before they go out to do their next big push. You know? Do we know how spiritual they are as far as meditation goes? Oh, yeah, yeah, they were because very spiritual. Because meditation could be very, very extreme and time-consuming if you really get into it. We know that the original Khan, uh, the, those particular tribes, they were very big in the animalism, into, into shamanism. So they believed that there were spirits everywhere. They believed in ancestor worship, so their ancestors were still there. It would be completely normal for them to ask the rock for advice or, or to, to praise the mountain or even to say, you know, uncle so-and-so, what do you think about this? And, and, and possibly even ex, uh, expect some wisdom to come percolating through from your ancestor who hopefully is standing by there trying to tell you something that you need to know. I could fully see them, you know, grinding up a batch of mushrooms that they boil in a special stew and then ask their the four winds what they thought about, you know, the oncoming uh, campaign. You know, they, they were very naturalistic. Uh, like you said, Bruce, a very naturalistic, very uh, ancestral. That's why when 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 Genghis Khan was when he died, 
uh, the campaign ended because they took him back to this this mountain, this one mountain that he, you know, saw as the home of his ancestors, and that literally halted that campaign until they handled his death and, you know, handled all the 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 passing on of powers and such. And then the new campaign, I believe it was Kublai Kai, was his son, grandson. You know, went on to to continue the campaign. These are very intricate people. I mean, they have spiritual beliefs and such, you know. And and like you said, Amber, you know, I, I don't know exactly what their beliefs are, but I imagine, you know, I can imagine them, you know, meditating to the to the rock and the four winds and stuff. I mean, how else do you communicate with these natural items, which which they did do? One of the ways that you do it is by making musical instruments out of them and playing them. All right, so so you're playing a character – and you're part of a you know an IDA team. You know you're one of the cons men who's been sent forth to travel with these adventurers, find new opportunities to enrich the con. Right. So you've got two loyalty issues here, right? You've got your loyalty to IDA because you're part of that team and you have to follow the team leader. Right. And then you've got your loyalty to the con. So let's let's talk about that that duality here. Let's imagine we're playing that character. You know I'm this golden horde guy. And I'm hanging out with the party. What am I going to be like? Uh, we, we go along and we encounter some new technology, something that I think that the con would want to get. Ooh, mine! Right. But, but, but the leader of IDET says, no, we got to take this back to IDET. What kind of conflicts, what kind of things are we going to run into here? How's he going to act? Actually, it depends on the initial, when he's first introduced to the IDET team. It, it really, that's going to determine who's top dog and who's not. Say we have player characters. Uh, everyone's a player character at this point. Uh, the person playing it decides to play, you know, a Mongol as a bit of a grabby, you know, always looking to backstab the leader type type person. That's possible. You know, some people don't, you know, may not get it. Which means the leader of the of the idea team is always in conflict with the, with this guy. Is whenever they want to do something, he's always opposing it because it's because it's not for the con. Because that's where his primary loyalties are. With the con. Well, I think he would always be asking, how does this serve the con? Yeah. He would consider it to be a perfectly valid question at any time that they were making a decision. Yep. Especially if it's things that he knows that they can use back home. Well, yeah, if they're going to be sitting there and they find a piece of technology fits a weapon, oh, you know that that hordesman is going to be going, uh, yeah, that's coming back with me. Now, if it's something like, oh, it's a device that creates a field that keeps all vermin away, it'll be like, well, that's kind of nice, but I'm assuming that the Golden Hordesmen aren't exactly the most clean, so that really wouldn't bother them. Bad traits. Smell. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Poor hygiene. They might also understand that vermin eat crops, and that means less money for the con. And like I said, the Black Plague came out of Mongolia, so there you go. You know, that might be something he really might want to take back. As I recall, nobody understood what caused the Black Plague. Yeah, but see, now they now they can. Now they can know. Right. It's going to be really strange for, for him as, as a member of, of the Golden Horde to come out and be introduced to a whole lot of ideas like, like why we, we want you to take a bath. Like germ theory. Yeah. I mean, he'd be like, What? What are you talking about? That's crazy talk. And then, of course, you'd have to prove it to him. The reasons why they're not taking bath, look where they are. They're in the middle of a step. 
where's the water going to be? I, I, I feel like they, they actually, they probably actually, if he found a lake or a river, bath time. Well, John, I, I mean, they, they were everywhere. And again, this is this is something that's written down here on this page. I mean, Genghis Khan didn't walk around, you know, smelly. Well, maybe not. Maybe so. I mean, there were there were issues. People talk about how smelly the cities were, you know. And and, and even if you taught somebody germ theory, he's got you know the habits of a lifetime. You're not going to suddenly find him washing up every day just because he found out that that's the way to knock down disease. He's like, I've been healthy my entire life. You know, you must be weak. The germs affect you. You, you know where I see a big problem, though, in the party? This is, Let's talk about conflict here a little bit. I see uh, there's going to be two things. There's going to be leadership, but but I'm going to talk about just – we'll get back to leadership, but I'm going to talk about just interpersonal stuff. So, you know – Let's say he observes the fact that he's not the leader of the team, and he's fine with that because you know he's used to following orders from you know from from superiors. Right. But like one of the other members on the team who is not a superior to him starts talking some to him. He's like, "You're a barbarian, and you don't know what you're doing." And here, blah 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 blah. I see the smackdown coming. Yeah. I see a fight coming, and I see the the golden horde guy. Not relenting and not not giving in to the to the demands of the, the you know the leader of the party saying you know you can't just hit these guys for no reason you know just because he said something bad to you I can see him you know saying well you know what I'll follow your orders but you're asking too much here he offended my honor and I'm gonna do what I need to do and I I don't see him as being like terribly difficult for the most part. But there's, the party's going to have to learn to respect this guy. Yeah, I, I see him establishing a pecking order really early. It'll be like the team leader, then the guy from the Golden Horde, and then everybody right. else. Well, right. because exactly. well, we, we did this with the high-tech, low-tech episode we did about a year ago. Now, we got this guy who is from a PL2 technology. And proud of it. Yeah. And you got the, the rest of the team are from, like, PL6. Well, we already had this, that most primitives are going to be taught, you know, they're going to, just the mindset of the higher tech people, you're doing all the grunt work. You're strong, you're hardy, you do all this heavy lifting. That's going to be real quick. It's like, oh, you think because you've got all the nice gadgets that you don't do hard work? Because it says, you know, good riders, uh, ardent survivalists, great hunters. Okay, yeah, that means that they are more into those naturalistic skills, but, yeah, that one guy talking smack to him, that's their culture. You impugn my honor, yeah, I'm going to clock you. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's going to be that initial conflict of the team leader going, as much as he deserved it, <laughs> no, please don't beat down the other team members. You know? But at the same time, I could see that team leader pulling everyone else aside and saying, look, you have to realize we have one of these guys on our team, and you have to realize, you know, how they think. You can't be talking to them the same way you would talk to somebody else. If you're going to start breaking bad with him, you better expect to catch one in the eye. You're going to have to treat this guy with with respect, or he's going to take it. It's like with a pack of dogs. He's beta dog. He's not alpha dog, unless he, of course, he feel, feels he can take down the alpha dog and become the team leader. For example. If one of the team members is kind of snooty and, and he, you know, he's used to being able to say snooty things like, oh, well, you're just a barbarian, you know, and that the other person has to take it. They have to come, you know, their only retort 
in, in a polite society is to, 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 you know, come up with a wittier comeback. Well, in this party, you know, that isn't the comeback. The comeback is a kick to the guts, you know, and that's when the Genghis, you know, the, the, the guy from the Golden Horde is standing over him going, oh, really? So uh, where's your comeback now? The, you know, he's like, you gave me your insult. That was my comeback. Where's yours? And the guy is sucking wind. Pretty much that's what you have to deal with, dealing with one of these guys, because they are not going to give in to that. Yeah, and I, the kicker is with these mm-hmm. golden hordesmen, the Mongolians, they were extremely efficient hand-to-hand fighters. That mm-hmm. snooty guy isn't going to see that punch or that kick or that trip or that elbow to the face coming. It's going to be like, well, I think you can, oh, God, you know, and just, <laughs> that's it. His tooth enamel's finding out how it handles stomach acid. You know, it's just, it's going to end up de-escalating very quick, and it's going to have to take a very sharp team leader to realize, okay, this isn't going to work out this way doing this. We got to give this guy his due. His skills could save our bacon sometime. Actually, I can see this happening, especially if there's a tase on the team, because unfortunately, Victorians tend to look down their nose at the lesser races. Yes. <laughs> oh, I say, chap, could you bother jump in the lake and swish around a bit because you don't smell so bad? <laughs> oh, um, you see that pit over there, that deadly pit? Well, why don't you go on and jump on it? Right. You know what's down there? Boys! Lots of boys! Tons of boys! And, and they haven't seen a woman in months. And, and, and they're not picky at all. Just, oh, just jump down, would you? <laughs> this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Amber. It's all fun and games until the DM rolls a one. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be having your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.